friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have a show about a couple different topics today. We are going to talk to a good friend of ours, Father Benedict Keeley. He is a priest of the Ordinariate and the founder of Nazarene.org. He is an expert on uh, Middle East and Iraq, on all things Christian in the Middle East. And we want to talk to him about the fact that the Holy Father, Pope Francis, is embarking for Iraq next week. And he's going to Iraq to a place that is the birthplace of Christianity, a place where Christianity has almost been extinguished through violent means, um, through exclusion, through, through forced migration. Father Ben, he knows very intimately what the people in Iraq are going through and what this trip of the popes means for the future of the region. We're also, after that, going to talk to Monsignor John Sayek. He is uh, currently just outside Portland, Oregon, serving as a priest at Christ the King Catholic School. Prior to his arrival at Christ the King, he served at the Vatican as an official of the Congregation for Bishops as a papal master of ceremonies for Pope Benedict XVI and also for Pope Francis. So he has a really interesting perspective. We have lots of interesting questions for him. He'll also tell us about what it's like to work in a Catholic high school during these times of pandemic. But first, I wanted to talk about a couple things that have been have been interesting me. And the pandemic has uh, opened up for us these views into things that were already happening in our society, things that were already happening in the culture that the pandemic has uncovered it, has made things clear for us. And some of these are very sad realities. First of all, the way that we have ceded uh, so many of our liberties over to um, unelected experts to to elected politicians who who always have some some strange ulterior motives going on. It seems we're told uh, we're following the science, but the science doesn't account for some of these ill-conceived lockdowns, which may be may be slowing the spread of COVID, uh, but also are uh, exacerbating all sorts of problems: mental illness, sadness, suicide, depression, domestic abuse, the the destruction of so many hopes. Of, of it's just a myriad of things that people are suffering, and and we're not. I don't believe we are when we talk about risk and we talk about COVID. We're not also taking in a, into account the concomitant risk of these lockdowns in real human suffering and death. Another thing that we should be paying attention to that the pandemic has uncovered is the way that our culture, our Western culture, undervalues the worth of the life of people with disabilities. And I have a couple of examples about that. First, we have uh, in New York, uh, Governor Cuomo, just the same way that he ordered that the elderly nursing home population, once they had become medically stable from being in the hospital with COVID when they were when they got very sick and they went to, to the hospital, he ordered that they be returned to their nursing homes, even though there was a comfort ship sent by the U.S. Uh, government uh, waiting to take these patients back so they wouldn't have to go back into those crowded nursing homes. I mean, of course, they're crowded. These are aggregate living facilities. And Governor Cuomo sent them back. Well, he did the same thing with the disabled, mentally disabled uh, people who also were living in aggregate uh, conditions in, in places where they, they do take good care of our vulnerable, but they were not equipped 
to take back their own patients. Coming back with COVID, they were not able to keep them away from the other residents. So we have the same kind of situation. And it's really, it's it has shown a terrible disregard for the value of the disabled brothers and sisters amongst us. And that's really, really sad. Out of the UK, we have a similar story and even worse. Also, patients being sent back to nursing to their aggregate living homes and and in the UK, very ugly. They have been given DNRs or do not resuscitate orders simply on the basis of having a mental disability like Down syndrome. This is a, a, a terrible thing. I hope that we have not seen this in the US. Being less likely to to take good care f- ment- physically, medically, of a person with a mental disability simply because they're disabled. What a horrible, horrible thing. I hope that our country has not been guilty of this. But the truth is, I won't be surprised if it's true, if it has happened, because we have come along very far in this idea that, that people are only worth as much as they can produce, as how much they can give back to society. What a terrible way to, to value people. As a doctor, I do a lot of fetal ultrasound, and every time that I see an, a fetus with a disability, my heart just quails because too often, more often than not, these babies are aborted. Because as a society, as a culture, we have become unable to see the the image of God in every single one of our brothers and sisters, even those that are disabled. And the truth is, our disabled brothers and sisters are even more made in the image of God. They are more vulnerable and more more deserving of and, and, and clamoring for our attention and our tenderness. And God is more like that. <laughs> you know, when God came to the world, he came as a, a powerless, vulnerable human being. And that is how he presented himself. And that's exactly who we should see in our vulnerable, disabled brothers and sisters. So I think this bears a lot of prayer and a lot of introspection, and also a demand from from our the people who rule us, <laughs> the people we elect, to say, no, every single human being must be treated with the same care and respect, no matter what their condition in life, what they can give back, quote unquote. All of them are our brothers and sisters. Welcome to the show, Father Ben. Thank you, Grace. It's always a joy to be with you. Thank you for having me. We like to have you on, Father, um, not just because we like you. We like your accent. We like your good humor, your wisdom. (laughs) But we also like you because you have a fabulous organization called Nazarene.org. And it's something, it takes, it uh, involves something that all of us should be thinking about all the time and praying about all the time. So why don't you tell our listeners about Nazarene.org? Thank you, Gracie. Nazarene is a small charity which I started six years ago in Stowe, Vermont. And my priesthood is dedicated totally now to advocacy and aid for the persecuted church, especially in the Middle East. And so we do two things, advocacy, which is me doing what I'm doing now, talking, speaking, writing, preaching, trying to get people to... uh, think about the persecuted and pray for the persecuted and then uh, aid which is helping families stay in the middle east christians who were driven out to stay in the middle east by giving them mini microfinancing to have their own businesses so they don't just take charity but they survive and they thrive and they they're entrepreneurs like every american family understands starting your own business and creating your own wealth and having your own dignity so that's what we do and obviously i'm very focused uh, at the moment because the pope is about to go to iraq 
And Father, before we talk about the Pope going to Iraq, what is, give us a snapshot of Christian persecution across the world. How bad is it? Uh, how, how concerned should we be? Well, unfortunately, the snapshot is, is very bad. It's, uh, Pope Francis has said himself that it's the worst level of persecution since the first three centuries of the church. And in many ways, it's, it's worse than the first three centuries because, of course, there are many, many more Christians. And you can just look at the map of the world and see persecution in, in higher or lower waves. I mean, we think, for example, of China. We know how terrible the situation is. We hear about the Uyghur Muslims, uh, but also the Christians that we know are being terribly persecuted. The church is being controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but you, you look then across into Pakistan, you look across the world, but of course, again, the Middle East, we, we focus on Africa. The persecution is growing oh. and growing and growing. I mean, so the things you really hear about uh, the people in Africa, the, the horrible attacks and the disappearances, the kidnappings... Murders. And yeah, it's, it's hardly ever covered in the in the Western media, but it's it's a full-scale genocide now going on in, in Nigeria, across the, the Lake Chad region. Thousands and thousands of Christians, not, not hundreds, thousands being killed. So it's very disturbing, and it needs to be a real focus of uh, prayer and action for Christians, especially in the United States, to to be uh, alert and to be praying always, because we're members of the body of Christ, so we must be concerned about our fellow brothers and sisters suffering. So it's bad, lots of places, but you focus on the Middle East, and all of our focuses are on the Middle East right now, because Pope Francis is visiting Iraq in March, the first week of March, I believe, and why do you think he has chosen to visit Iraq? Yes, he's going to Mar to Iraq on March the 5th, Friday, March the 5th. He's arriving in Baghdad. He's wanted to go for a long time, especially since the genocide, the ISIS genocide starting in 2014, the summer of 2014. He's wanted to go. He's expressed a desire to go. I think first and foremost, and that's what the Iraqi Christians hope, is to show love, support as the successor of Peter, to highlight their suffering and to Please, God, alert the world again, because I think the world also, the media has forgotten. They think it's all over. Maybe they think Christians are just fine. There's a, there's another angle, which is perhaps not so uh, welcomed by the Iraqi Christians, which is a, a little concern that he wants to do a lot about dialogue with Islam and the whole human fraternity project. But... Um, but uh, the main reason is to show support and, and to give the Christians in, in Iraq a sign that the successor of Peter cares about them. So you mentioned the genocide in Iraq, and I know you've noted before in, in your work that I always read uh, that the Christian population of Iraq has shrunk by about 80% from more than a million before the invasion to fewer than 200,000 today. That's, that's crazy. Where did all those people go? Well, that's a very good question. It's uh, sadly, well, first and foremost, I think it's important for the listeners to understand that this wasn't just about ISIS in starting in 2014. Basically, the Christians have been persecuted, of course, for centuries. There have been periods of calm and, and periods where things have been better. But certainly since the fall of Saddam Hussein, after the U.S.-led coalition invasion, 
in 2003, the situation for Christians became terrible. For example, Mosul, the city of Mosul, Nineveh, from the scriptures, where the Pope will go on the Sunday uh, of his visit, he will be in Mosul, which is Nineveh, the city that, of course, Jonah the prophet preached in. But most of the Christians had actually been driven out of Mosul by 2008 because of kidnappings, murders. They had to pay the jizya, which is the Islamic tax. Basically, by being strong-armed, people would turn up. At, imagine, for our listeners, somebody turns up at your door and says, in, in order you to, for you to live in this city, you've got to pay me tax, even up to three, four, five hundred dollars a month. Father, it sounds um, like nothing more than a mafia shakedown to be told to pay a tax simply for being Christian. Yes, they ha imagine in an American household or anywhere where our listeners are listening that someone comes to your door and tells you in order to live in your neighborhood, in your city, you must pay a tax, uh, an Islamic tax to be allowed to live there. And so because of that, many, many, many people left. And then, of course, ISIS came. Where did you? Where did they go, you asked? Well, unfortunately, many, many, many people have left Iraq and actually don't want to return. They've gone to countries which will accept them. Many are refugees, of course. Some of them went to Syria, which is also involved in a war, Lebanon, Turkey, and other, and some countries have received them quite generously, like Australia, Canada, unfortunately, the U.S. and Great Britain, my country, have not has not been very generous in receiving Christians, the victims of genocide, which is, I think, unfortunate. But so, yes, the Christian population, which is as old as the time of the apostles, is now really on the verge of extinction, which is another reason why the Pope is going, I think, to to give them some strength and some hope. People tend to think of the Middle East as an Islamic place that Christians are almost extra in. But that's exactly the wrong way to think about it, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly the wrong way around. We were, Christians were there first. They, as I said, they were, if you think, the example I always use, which I think hits home to, to our listeners, is when you hear on Pentecost Sunday that reading from the Acts of the Apostles, when Peter is preaching, and they think, remember, they think that they're drunk, the apostles are drunk, because everyone understands the language. And there's that great sort of section where they say Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and people from Mesopotamia. Well, Mesopotamia is Iraq. Hmm. Um, so when we think that there on Pentecost Sunday, when the church was born, there were people from Iraq and from Syria, etc., etc. So the church is in the Middle East is not only the cradle of Christianity because of Christ himself being born in the Middle East, but it's the cradle of Christianity because the church was born there. So these people were not brought the gospel by us. They brought the gospel to us. For example, I'm English, as you can probably tell, and uh, you said people like my accent, so I could just read the sports pages and not say anything of <laughs> any value or sense. But we, for example, in England had a Syrian Archbishop of Canterbury in the seventh century. Really? Uh, there have been six Syrian popes in the life of the church. And most of us don't know that. It's extraordinary to think that's our heritage, which is the, the other reason why we must care about Christians in the Middle East, because it's almost like family. If we forget where our family comes from, 
then we've lost something huge. Archbishop Warda of Erbil, if I said that right, in Iraq, he's very hopeful about Pope Francis visiting the country. He told the journalist Edward Penton, I'm quoting now about uh, Archbishop Warda, he said, the Pope visiting the birthplace of Abraham, who is revered in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, brings a message of brotherhood, fraternity, and respect, which is an extremely important message that comes from Iraq and the Iraqi people. What do you think of that? Well, it's, it's very important. The Pope is going to the place called Ur, U-R, uh, which is the birthplace of Abraham. So the three Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, you could say were born there. And that's where he's going to speak about human fraternity and brotherhood. And that is very, very important. I think that's that's the place to speak. It's the appropriate place, and the message is very important. The, the slight concern that Christians have that I've spoken to in Iraq, and I've known having spoken to them and been there so many times since, 2000, early 15. They're a little concerned, though, that if that's the central thrust of the whole visit, the need to uh, dialogue with Islam and live in peace with Islam, I'll just give you one anecdote. Uh, an Iraqi priest said to me, one of my early visits, probably 2015 or maybe 2016, he said, we lived in peace with our neighbors. We, we don't need any lectures about living in peace. We were peaceful, but they took my house, my neighbors stole my house in Mosul. They stole my house and they turned my church into an ISIS torture center. So Christians have always been in peace, trying to live peacefully with their neighbors. Um, and so they don't really need to be told. It's the, as it were, the other side that needs to be reminded uh, about peace and living in harmony. So the message is important. But it mustn't be the central thrust of his visit. It must be, I think, and I know many Iraqi Christians think, it needs to be highlighting the persecution. So if I understand you correctly, there is a danger of drawing false equivalences and saying that, that the peace uh, must be restored and that everyone should be peaceful when in fact it's, it's, a question, it's not a question of different people not acting peacefully, it's a question of severe aggression of one group uh, over another. Exactly. Uh, that's a very good phrase, false equivalences. I think that's a perfect phrase. I could almost leave it there. Um, there, is, there is no equivalence. That's, that's the point. The Christians were living in peace they were attacked, they were, their women were raped, their children were kidnapped. And so to say that there is any kind of equivalence is is wrong. And so I think, as I say, please God, that won't be the central focus. But th there's a definitely a concern that that might be too strong a focus of the visit. So we must pray that the central focus remains the persecuted who suffered so much and alerting the world to the ongoing persecution. Because this is going to be watched not just by the Christians in Iraq, but Christians across the Middle East, but as we said at the beginning of the program, by persecuted Christians all over the world, they, they want to hear a message from Pope Francis of support and of comfort, but also a challenge to those who are persecuting them to stop in the name of peace, in the name of humanity. And maybe shaming them into stopping by highlighting in the world stage the way that only maybe someone like Pope Francis can do, highlighting their depredations for the whole world to see. I think that's a real hope because at least for a few days, two, three days, the, the world media will 
be watching for a little while. And if he speaks clearly and strongly, that will have some, there'll be some repercussions. And I think that's what also we must be praying for, that the world media gives it the attention. It is, it's the first visit of a pope in history to Iraq. So it's, it's a big deal. What about the bigger picture of peace in the Middle East, not just Christian persecution? Do you think that the pope's visit will have some impact there? I hope so. I mean, once again, the problem has always been the Christians are in the middle because they're such a minority now. They're not really part of the negotiations. I mean, it may be political, but we have to thank God for the initiatives of the former administration, the Trump administration, really changed things in the Middle East, moved things on. I mean, peace accords with several countries in, in the Middle East, that's a real blessing. I don't care if it's partisan or not. I Father, mean, those appear to have gone down the memory hole with a lot of other I things. Know, I know. <laughs> well, you know, people joked about, people actually joked about, well, should President Trump get the Nobel Prize? Well, quite frankly, anyone else would have got the Nobel Prize because of what he did towards the end of his administration. So really back to your question, though, no, I mean, please, God, this will have some influence. It, it's hard to say whether it will or not. The Pope will be visiting during the pandemic. And in fact, when, when I heard he was visiting, I was surprised because I'm not sure how that works. I don't know how the pandemic has been in Iraq. It's bad. It's, it's bad, bad, right? I mean, that was one of the reasons why even up to now, there were questions of whether the visit would go ahead. The, Of course, the Iraqis don't have the vaccine. It's been hitting quite badly all across the Middle East. The Pope apparently has received both jabs, both doses of the vaccine, and apparently every uh, journalist who, who is going on the trip has to have received both vaccines and has to have a test. It's But the people there, no, it's going to be it's going to be a worry. Crowds gathering, etc. But I think he's decided that if he doesn't go now, he might never go. So maybe, maybe there's never a right time. And do we expect the Iraqi government to allow crowds together in, in this time of pandemic for for a, for the representative of, of a people that they don't respect? Well, they know the eyes of the world are on them. So they want, the one thing they want is to make this visit a success. They don't want any problems. They don't want any security issues because that's the other thing. It's not just COVID. I mean, you, you might know that just a couple of weeks ago, literally rockets landed in Erbil airport where the Pope will fly into. No, this I was, didn't know that. Yeah. So, so security, one of my friends, one of the priests I help a lot and I've become good friends with, whenever I ask him, is it safe? Like last time I wanted to go, I said, is it safe? And he just laughed. He said, Father, it's never safe. <laughs> so, you know, it's not safe for the Pope either. So, but that's life, isn't it? It's not safe for you and I to walk out of the door. Maybe we might get hit by a bus. So it's our time. It's our time. My husband, good. Father, that you know very well, we keep having this conversation about risk averse versus risk tolerant. He says... Because we, we keep having the conversation related to COVID because um, people are on different positions on that spectrum between risk-averse and risk-tolerant. But uh, <laughs> And I think I know where you and your husband stand on both of those things, Grace. Yeah, I'm more tolerant than he is to risk, yeah. obviously. No, no, it's true, though. It, it, it's true. We've become very, very risk-averse, but, but life is risky. Well, you're living in a country, Father, that is extremely risk-averse. I have a daughter extremely. in London, and she called me today crying, actually. 
because the lockdown is so fierce and there's all this good news about vaccines and how so many millions of Britons have been vaccinated and yet they don't foresee loosening for many weeks still and the people are I'll at give, the I'll, end of their I'll tether. I'll give her a call and I'll give her a call and cry with her. Believe me, I'm I'm, I'm crying also. It's it's just insane. We've Okay, so I have to tell you here where I live in, in the United States when when it's time for mass there you can tell there's 80 100 cars outside parked outside and but maybe in London where she is um, when it's time for mass you don't notice anything maybe a couple of older people making their way quietly on the sidewalk oh, she needs to just open the door and she'll find it is it is it is open so so a uh, little bit of a little bit of encouragement for her there when do you think uh, father that you'll be returning to Iraq or is that something that's so hard to think about because no, of all the difficulties. I would like to have been there. I was asked to go for this visit. Uh, I would love to have been there, but uh, as I said, it's that requirement of the vaccine, and it's also almost impossible to fly out of here at the moment. So I'm praying, and I'd ask the listeners to pray. It's one of my intentions, uh, certainly through Lent, that that I can get back to Iraq and Syria and Lebanon uh, very soon before the summer. Please God, because. I need to see the people and I, I need to see our projects and, and the other thing is one can only speak with a certain authority when, when you've been there. That's why I went in the first place. It's why I've been seven times to Iraq because then it's not secondhand knowledge. It's it's knowledge from the ground. So I'm praying to be back very soon, please God. Well, you mentioned your projects. Before we go, we have a couple of minutes left. Can you tell us tell us about your projects? Because they're very interesting. They're very specific and, and precise. Well, as I said at the beginning, it's it's about, it's very small. One of our kind of mottos is the old motto of small is beautiful. Some people say it's a drop in the ocean, but every drop matters in the ocean. And so what we do is we try and give a mini minor micro financing loan to a family to start a business. So for seven, eight thousand dollars it's possible to actually start up a business which is when you think about it is not that much so for example we have we've just our latest business that we've helped is is a coffee shop in the town of Bartella in Iraq the Pope will be quite close to that town and it's the only one in the town so we give them the loan the families start up there's another one we have a cake shop in the town of Karakosh where the Pope is actually going which was the largest Christian town in 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 Iraq we actually give them the money and then they start their business and then we might help them a bit more and then they're on their own and they can feed their families maybe employ some other people um, and as I said it gives them dignity not not just giving charity to do nothing to start a business to survive and then to thrive you know you say it's a drop in the ocean but if that's your family and suddenly you're able to feed them with dignity and send your children to school wow what a beautiful gift that's what it's all about, Gracie, and that's why we're so grateful to those who support us. Um, it's small, but um, it's such a you see the smile on people's faces when when they can start up their own business and 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 feel that they're doing something useful. Well, what wonderful work, Father, and thank you for joining us and telling us about the persecuted Christian and reminding us to pray for them and to keep them in our intentions. And for our listeners, the your website is called Nazarene.org. I'm going to spell it because it's hard to spell. N-A-S-A-R-E. 
EAN.org, and uh, you can go there and see about the projects that Father Ben organizes and maybe contribute and know that you also helped uh, bring a, fam- a Christian family out of poverty in the Middle East. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Gracie. Bless everyone at Conversations with Consequences. God bless. with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Next segment of the show, we'll be talking to Monsignor John Sayak. He is the proud priest of Christ the King Catholic School outside Portland, Oregon. And prior to his arrival at Christ the King, he served at the Vatican as an official of the Congregation for Bishops and as a Papal Master of Ceremonies for Pope Benedict XVI and also Pope Francis. He has a very interesting perspective to offer us about life in Rome and life in the U.S. So welcome to the show, Monsignor. Well, thank you, Gracie. Great to be invited and to have this time with you. Monsignor, I really want to talk to you about your experiences this past year as priest at a Catholic school during this crazy pandemic. Since parochial schools are really emerging as the champions of the pandemic, it seems to me. But first, before we get into that, with all your wealth of knowledge and experience in the Vatican, I was wondering if we could get your thoughts on the big news this week about Cardinal Robert Sara's resignation that the Pope accepted, uh, something that was expected for his age. But we were wondering if we could talk to you about that. And, and is, there, is there more behind it? Does it seem more significant than just an age-related resignation? Well, first of all, I, I, uh, I work in the Congregation for Bishops, which is right above the Congregation for Divine Worship. And so I got to see Cardinal Seurat often, uh, often on the staircase, you know, going to work and just uh, have always been very impressed with him, with his prayerfulness, with his wisdom, his courage. You know, his, his books are outstanding. And I know I've had an impact on a lot of believers and, and uh, strengthened their faith in, in these difficult times. As far as the resignation, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a Vatican insider anymore, being a parish priest now for a few years. But I guess what I would say is, um, obviously, he's over 75. The Pope can accept his resignation whenever. The The fact that a successor was not immediately named, when I saw that news, I'm like, hmm, that doesn't, that sounds, maybe something is up. I don't you know, I'm not quite sure what, but it but it isn't always the norm. You know, oftentimes when a resigna- a person of that stature resigns, then the successor is usually named at the same time. You know, people who are so far from being Vatican insiders, like, me and our listeners, most of our listeners, you know, all these things seem like 4D chess. I happen to really love Cardinal Sarah. I was lucky enough to meet him. I have one of his books, his first book, God or Nothing, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. He autographed for me and it's my prize book. I would never lend it to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. And and what you know, you know, from having read his book and then having met him is that he's the real deal. Like he's, you know, what what he he says and how he lives and acts is the same. That's uh, there's a lot of integrity there, and and uh, you know you mentioned about you know being a Vatican insider or, or whatnot. Even when you work in the Vatican, you know, like myself, is like sometimes things are going on you have like no idea. <laughs> it's it can be it can be kind of a complex place. So you had two different positions in the Vatican, right? You mm-hmm. mentioned you mentioned one. I mentioned it in the in the intro. Congregation for bishops and also the papal master of ceremonies. I have no idea what a congregation for bishops is. Yeah, it's it's uh so that's what I was when I originally went to 
was called to Rome, that's what that was my job was as an official in the congregation for bishops. And that congregation handles everything related to the Pope and bishops around the world. And the primary work of that congregation is the vetting and, and selecting of mm. bishops around the around the world. So I, I would say around the world, those not under the jurisdiction of propaganda fide, so not the, not the mission territories. My boss, most of my year, almost all my years there was uh, Cardinal Mark Ouellette, who's oh, sure. a Canadian cardinal and um and so, yeah, he, he was the prefect of that office, and there was about, oh, 20-some priests from all over the world that, that uh, assisted him as, as staffers to, to help that work. That's, that's a work that usually that begins on the local level in a nunciature in a country, and then comes to the congregation before it goes up to the to the Holy Father for a decision, and then that comes back, the decision comes back through us, and then back out to the uh, to the nuncios, and then they they make the necessary communications and whatnot. So we, it's kind of a quiet work because we work almost exclusively with with nuncios, and and uh, and those are the people representative in a country. So it's not it's a very confidential process, and that that's actually a really good thing I think in the church, is in that it protects. First of all, it kind of protects uh, you know priests' reputations because. You know, not everybody who's vetted gets selected, even when they're good, you know, and so that keeps people from, you know, eyebrows raising and things like that about if somebody was, you know, was considered and not and not chosen. Uh, and it also kind of keeps the politics down in, in the, the, that whole process. So Now, your second position that you held under Pope Benedict and Pope Francis, I, I can sort of imagine what that is, the master of ceremonies. There's probably nothing more ceremonial on earth than the Vatican. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so the uh, the papal master of ceremonies team is are the is the the group of priests that uh, really execute all the papal liturgies. So anytime the pope is praying publicly, that crew is is the crew that helps get it done. And the 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 maestro, the the head MC is uh, Monsignor Guido Marini, who's been there. He came in under Pope Benedict, and he's and he's still there, and just a, an incredible, um, just an incredible priest, incredible man. I loved working with him, and so we would. There's about anywhere between you know nine and twelve guys at a time, and that and that was a very public sort of thing. That's when you get all sorts of pictures and videos and whatnot of being next to the Holy Father, and was able to go on some of the um, trips. I, I went with, on one trip with uh, Pope Benedict, his one of his last trips when he went up to Le, the shrine of Loretto and in Italy. And then I did uh, a few trips with Francis. I, I, I went with him to Korea and then uh, to Sri Lanka. Uh, and then on the, the trip to the United States, I imagine most of our listeners may will remember mm-hmm. that, that visit, uh, Miramar and Bangladesh. That was one of, one of my last uh, trips. That's I think fascinating. That, was, that, that was in fact the last trip I took with him. And those are, are, are a beautiful experience you know, of being do, doing those sorts of things and going to those parts of the world and, and the, the faith of the people who just love to see the Holy Father and, and to be close to him in that way. I was a little girl in Mexico and when Pope uh, John Paul II visited. He made his first, I think it was his first trip out of Italy. Or, yeah. So you remember, remember that excitement? Oh my gosh. I still dream about it. It was I was very little and he came down a main street, maybe just a block away from our apartment and the streets were thronged and the enthusiasm, the fervor, the prayerfulness was just spectacular. I've never really gotten over that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and and even from those those of us who are actually doing the visiting and part of that group, it's, it's such a beautiful experience to be able to just to be a part of that. You must get a real sense when you're involved in that kind of thing about the universality of the church. No, absolutely. That 
you know, that, that faith that, that transcends, you know, ethnicity and geography and you know, all, all of those differences and distinctions that we have in the, in the human race that the, the Catholic faith brings it all, it brings them all together. Yeah, it's fabulous. It, I know the Pope now is going to Iraq, and I've, I've been praying about that. It seems to me oh, a very yeah, dangerous yeah. thing to do, but I suppose the people who know best must know best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's not afraid of going to places that are, you know, experiencing unrest and and uh, i remember that the trip to miramar you know there was there was kind of a there's a that continued controversy that the uh, muslim population there and uh, and so that was there's some some te- some tensions and things like that but he's as, as we know our holy father is not afraid of entering into situations of tension did you feel a strong responsibility as uh, being partly in charge of the liturgies uh, a strong sort of historical responsibility striking the right note in the right place uh, something a note that will maybe ring for, for for a long time for hundreds of years possibly oh yeah 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 that's that's uh, part of the joy too is to is to help promote the church's sacred liturgy you know in, in all those cultural contexts and to uh, because the liturgy is kind of, you know, there's a universality to the to the sacred liturgy as well, and and that helps to unite us, and to help to promote the the church's uh, liturgy, and and that's we get to work, you know, closely with with uh, priests and seminarians and other people on uh, on that local level, and 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 I know how how much of an impact it has on them and their in their own priesthood and the way they you know hopefully take that into their parishes into their dioceses and things like that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking with Monsignor John Sayak about his life working in the Vatican. And now I want to switch over to your life here in the U.S., Father. What a change you went from the amazing universality of the Vatican and your travels to a very specific place a parish school in Oregon. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so I'm, I'm a priest of the Archdiocese of Portland. Uh, this, this is where I grew up. I grew up in the town of Corvallis, which is a college town in, in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And, and and really, I've been a diocesan priest, you know, my whole priesthood. And really, I've always, you know, seen myself as a parish priest. That's what really attracted me in the vocation. And truly, that's what I felt called to when, when the Lord called me to the priesthood is to be a parish priest. And so the Vatican experience is wonderful and, and incredible. But, you know, to think of like, Long term, it's it's like my heart's always back in the parish, and so uh, after a, a good run at the Vatican, I the Archbishop Archbishop Alexander Sample, who's my Archbishop, he called me home and, and gave me a parish and with a, with a parish school, and it's it's just wonderful. It's it's a beautiful parish in the southeast suburbs of, of Portland uh, in the metro area. Yeah, we got a, we have this K through eight school actually starting a pre-K next year. And, and uh, it's a very um, diverse sort of parish, both uh, socioeconomically and also ethnically. And so it's a real beautiful uh, blend of folks and really, and really enjoy being back in the parish. And, you know, you had mentioned at the beginning, kind of this, the COVID and, the, and our parish schools, I think our, our Catholic schools have really shown forth, you know, what, what can be done, you know, even in the midst of a pandemic. And I was very proud of my principal, uh, Sarah Tabor. She's, she came on a couple of years ago and we were the first school in the Portland metro area to open in-person full-time 
learning back in November and wow. we were able to stay open and we followed all, you know, follow, we, we cohorted our, our classrooms to kind of kept, keep everybody safe. But we were, our mantra, we were determined. Our, our mantra was, you know, in-person education is the best way to educate. And so we want to do as much of that as possible safely. And she's, you know, and our teachers, oh my gosh, the principal and staff just worked so hard <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to make it happen. You know, I'm real proud of them. And uh, yeah, and the kids, it's so funny. I, you know, I could try to be out there and every morning when the kids are getting dropped off and they're like so happy to be at school. It's like, I don't remember being that happy when I was, when I was their age about going to school. You know, well, it's all, but, it's all relative. When you've been home staring at a computer screen at the age of eight for several months, yeah. going to school is must be heaven. So, so many of our, our parish schools are open and, and in person, whereas so there's still a lot of public schools that are still shut down. Even in your area, Father? Still, still, yeah, still distance learning. So I'm, I'm just really proud of our Catholic schools to, to be able to do do that. What do you think has made the difference? Because I hear people saying that private schools or parochial schools are more nimble, they're smaller, they can... Than, than public schools, but I feel like there's something more to it, something about our mission, our reason for existing that might be making a difference. I, I would totally agree with you on that one. I think it's, there's a more mission mindset, and we are no, nimbler. I mean, we, we have state regulations that we have to follow, and especially on you know for safety, you know, sanitation and stuff like that. And it's it is a lot of work, but I guess that's what I what I found in in our school is like they, they don't mind working hard when it's for the kids. You wrote a book called the. Catholic Guide to Depression. I wonder, have you been thinking a lot about that? As we've seen so many people's mental health take such a, a terrible hit due to loneliness and worry and anxiety. The depression and anxiety that a lot of Americans are feeling right now, and, and not just Americans, but anybody suffering from the pandemic, but it's going to be, it's significant. And we have to remember too, that a lot of those experiencing depression and anxiety are also our youth. You know, our young mm-hmm. people that were uh, cooped up at home for, for so long, our, our seniors, you know, who are you know, homebound. And, you know, it's, if you are of a certain age that, yeah, the, the, the virus could be very serious. That so people are even afraid to leave their homes. Yeah. So, so back in 2012, um, I collaborated with uh, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who's a wonderful Catholic psychiatrist and incredible uh, sort of uh, incredible physician and, and, uh, part, you know, partner to collaborate on this book. He, he actually, it was his book idea and he asked me to collaborate with him on it just to have a, a psychiatrist and a priest together to be able to pull every, and this is the beautiful thing about being Catholic is that, you know, we are open to all the truths. Mm-hmm. So we wanted, what we wanted to do in that book was to pull everything that we can use from psychotherapy and, and medicine to prayer and the sacraments and the spiritual life and how it all, all that stuff works together to combat depression. And so that's why we called it a Catholic guide to depression. So this is the thing that we, you know, because some people would, might be inclined to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sad. So I, I just need to pray more. I just need to pray more and that, that will help. And like, well, prayer is always good, but you know sometimes we have to take medicine too. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's and and to help to see that it's it's a both and and not an either or sort of approach. And and so that's what we we, we hope to accomplish with that. And and I've certainly. Um, seen that among among folks you know in this pandemic you know not only in oregon did we have uh, the pandemic we also had the rioting yes of course know, in the portland area yes. we had uh, we had wildfires so mm-hmm. i had i had parishioners who lost their homes to forest fire you know i mean we just had this string of calamities and, and difficulties that's just kind of one thing after another in fact and last week we had an ice storm oh. so i had parishioners that were without power for a week <laughs> you know that because because in, in portland oregon has this 
the, the, the weather is such is that it hovers around freezing. And so when you get this kind of freezing rain and the ice comes, the trees just come down, limbs and snapping power lines. And so it can be uh, really, really dicey. You know, if it's five degrees colder, we wouldn't have any trouble. But but because it kind of does that hovering around freezing, it, we get this with these ice storms sometimes. And so it's <laughs> just like just one more thing. And I, I was preaching to the to the to the congregations on on Sunday, and it's like, wow, it's you know, twenty one sure feels a lot like twenty twenty. <laughs> well, let's hope let's hope we're all gonna take upwards from that because twenty twenty was bad enough. But it sounds like it was a lot worse in Portland than in my. I'm in Miami. Things were sort of easy here. I, I can't complain. I never complain. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. That's good for you. That's that's a, and that's a good spiritual attitude as well. It's like whatever happens, you know, the Lord is here. The Archbishop, Archbishop Sample, is really promoting the novi, the uh, surrender novena. Is that oh, novena nice. by P- Padre Pio's spiritual mm-hmm. director? And so we, our office of divine worship, worship has printed up cards and we've given them out to everyone. And that is that's really been a big help to a lot of people of of the surrendering. You know, let the Lord take care of this. You know, we have to. It's a real call to deepen our spiritual life and deepen our prayer life and, and realizing the, the how the world is, is so insecure in a lot of ways. And it always has been. It always you know, has just, been. Yeah, we just haven't been. We haven't been reminded of it. Reminded of it so forcefully yeah. as we have recently. Exactly. No, exactly. Well, Monsignor, I want to repeat the name of your book because it sounds really valuable. The Catholic Guide to Depression. And I do think that it, it, it's very important to put both things, a mental health and, and our spiritual existence, all in the same <laughs> everything needs our attention, right? We can't exactly. we can't attend to one and not the other. Can we get that book on Amazon or some other way? Oh yeah, no, it's a uh, it's it's widely uh, widely available. It's Sophia Institute published it, uh, so you can get it on Amazon. You can get it from any major bookseller. I'm ordering it, and, and I and I hope some of our listeners will too. I have a lot of people in my life that are struggling with depression right now, unfortunately, like many of us. And anyway, Monsignor, thank you so much for taking time out for us. Thank you for telling us about your interesting times in Rome, and and congratulations on being a wonderful parish priest and and pulling your parish and your school through this hard time. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be on the show and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll help each other out and pray for each other and reminding, you know, we're all in this together. Definitely, Monsignor. Thank you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to join you again, ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in the Gospel this Sunday. As we, with the apostles, Peter, James, and John, behold Jesus transfigured among us. The scene of the transfiguration is three lessons that are meant to influence the way we experience Lent and life. First is about exertion, the effort that a holy Lent entails. Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up an exceedingly high mountain. Christian tradition normally associates the mountain where Jesus was transfigured as Mount Tabor, which towers over Galilee in the plains of Megiddo and takes over ten minutes to climb in vans, zigzagging up narrow paths. It would take vigorous climbers at least a few hours to ascend on foot. But scripture scholars believe that the more likely place where the glorification happened was Mount Hermon, now in southern Syria and close to Caesarea Philippi, where the preceding scene in St. Matthew's Gospel takes place. Mount Hermon is 9,230 feet tall, approximately five times the height of Mount Tabor. That would have been a whole day's work to ascend. 
They would have needed to leave civilization behind, their comfort zones behind, and climb with Jesus, sweating, probably gasping for air, to pray with Jesus and see him revealed. The lesson for us this Lent is that the Lord is likewise asking us to make an exertion. Lent is fundamentally dynamic. We're called to be on the move. Jesus never says to us, stay where you are, but always come and go and follow me. And the pilgrimage he seeks to have us make with him isn't in a comfy golf cart. He's asking us to climb, to sweat, to work, and to leave our comfort zones behind. What is the Lord asking you to leave behind in order to advance on the journey of faith? The second lesson is the help God gives to make this exertion. The Transfiguration, Saints Peter, James, and John saw something extraordinary at the end of their spiritual and physical climb. Jesus was transfigured. He and his clothes were radiant. He was speaking with Moses and Elijah, the greatest figures in Jewish history, about the exodus he was to accomplish in Jerusalem, when he would lead us, like Moses led the Israelites through slave, from slavery through water in the desert to the Promised Land. Only this time the slavery is sin, not Pharaoh. The water is baptismal, not the Red Sea. The desert is not in the Middle East, but in Lent. And the Promised Land is not flowing with milk and honey, but the living water that wells up to eternal life. The experience of the various theophanies at the top of the mountain was so powerful that Peter, James, and John didn't know what to say, but they wanted to keep the experience going for as long as possible, building booths for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. We can ask, though, why did the scene of the transfiguration happen? The reason was ultimately to strengthen them to remain strong in faith even when they would descend the Mount of Transfiguration to ascend Mount Calvary. When they would see Jesus transfigured in blood, they would be able to remember Jesus in glory. The Church helps us to capture the reason for Jesus' transfiguration in the Eucharistic preface for Mass, which the priest prays. For after Jesus had told his disciples of his coming death, on the holy mountain he manifested to them his glory, to show, even by the testimony of the Law and the Prophets, that the Passion leads to the glory of the Resurrection. It was to sustain their faith in trial. We know, however, that it didn't fully work. They fell asleep in the garden. They fled in Gethsemane. Only John was present at the foot of the cross. But while it, for the most part, failed them, it's meant to sustain us. This vision of Jesus' glory is what has sustained the faith of the martyrs in making the sacrifice of themselves for God, because they knew that once they breathed their last, they would see Jesus transfigured. This vision of Jesus' glory and how he wants us to share in it is meant to give us the hope to persevere in faith no matter what trials are coming our way. It's also what's meant to help us to live Lent boldly and make the sacrifice necessary in Lent to come into greater union with the Lord. If anything is keeping us from Jesus, the vision of the Lord's glory will help us to excise that obstacle or to use Jesus' biblical language to cut off those hands or feet or pluck out those eyes. The transfiguration teaches us that the sacrifice is worth it. Whatever we have to give up makes sense compared to the glory of Jesus we await, the glory he wants to share with us. The final lesson is perhaps the most important. After all of the other aspects of Jesus' transfiguration, God the Father finally speaks. He speaks only three times in the entire New Testament. At Jesus' baptism, when he pronounces Jesus' beloved Son in whom he's well pleased. At the Last Supper when, in response to Jesus' prayer to glorify his name, replies that he has glorified and will glorify it again, and here. But what he says is really quite strange when you think about it. 
after pronouncing Jesus once more as his beloved son, in answering the question Jesus himself had asked in the previous scene when he surveyed who the crowds and who the apostles were saying him to be, God the Father thundered, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's a peculiar imperative from God the Father. After all, what had Peter, James, and John been doing for the previous two years but listening to Jesus? They listened to him, called him from their boats to be fishers of men. They heard him say all his parables of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the sower and the seed, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and so many others. They listened to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, and the Great Eucharistic Discourse in the Capernaum Synagogue. They listened to him teach them how to pray. They listened to him instruct them as they walked along the dusty streets of Palestine. They listened to him lambaste the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees and console widows, sinners, and so many others. They had spent the last two years constantly listening to Jesus. But God the Father noticed something that they themselves hadn't grasped. They had been selectively listening to Jesus, and they had been particularly tone deaf to what Jesus had been saying about how he was going to be betrayed, suffer greatly in Jerusalem, be tortured, crucified, killed, and on the third day be raised. They didn't want to hear it at all. Jesus ended up telling them what would occur three separate times, but they didn't want to hear the message. And when Good Friday came, most of them were not within earshot to hear Jesus' seven last words from the cross. What they were even less willing to hear was what Jesus said immediately after, namely, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For wishes, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To be Jesus' disciple, to be able to follow him, they needed to say no to their earthly ambitions and be crucified with Jesus. God the Father, who could see their hearts, knew they were ignoring what Jesus was saying about his transfiguration and their transfiguration in suffering as well. And so that's why he said to them, listen to him. The same Father gives us the same imperative. On Ash Wednesday, Jesus said, repent and believe. Have we? Jesus called us to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Are we doing all three? Are we excelling in the self-denial, self-death through the crosses God gives us in following Jesus and heeding all his words? God the Father who calls us to listen to his Son We'll listen to our prayers for all the help we need to have the trusting, obedient ears needed. That's one of the most important parts of Lent. We have to listen to his son and follow his words. On Sunday, we will leave our homes to climb not the Mount of Transfiguration, but the altar of God. Said Mass that Lent and everything else in our faith finds its source and summit. The Lord wants us to make the exertion to leave our comfort zones and come even to come each day during Lent if we can. It's at Mass that we see Jesus transfigure, not in glory, but humility. We build a booth, we build not a booth for him, but a tabernacle and a church so that we can come into his presence and allow him to transfigure us. It's at Mass that we listen to his words, the words of eternal life, and seek to become living commentaries of that word. Each time we go to Mass, God gives us a reward for our, our exertions as a foretaste of forever, what he holds dearest but was willing to sacrifice for our salvation. So we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God the Father says to us, This is my beloved Son. Do whatever he tells you. Take seriously his words throughout Lent. Repent, believe, and follow him. Accompany him 
on the pilgrimage on which he wants to lead you, not at Mount Tabor, not Mount Hermon, but the celestial Jerusalem, to my house, where I've built a booth not only for him, for Moses and Elijah, but for you. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 